0: You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. And uh, just to reiterate what you saw on the screen, if you're late, uh, one of our partners that we just recently partnered with officially, uh, Hanuk and his family are church planters in Newcastle. And we are coming alongside them as they plant his church. He is from Pakistan originally, and you can meet him uh, next week or at the... uh, tea and, or chai and conversations, and if you, you know, nobody in America apparently makes a good cup of tea, so hopefully they'll be able to teach us, but uh, more so to hear about what God is doing in in their uh, little fellowship in Newcastle as we come alongside them. So we're excited to partner with them and church plant with them in another continent as we try to reach the nations for the name of Christ, so. um, Hebrews chapter one, so if you have a, a device or a copy of God's word open to Hebrews chapter one, a few weeks ago on a Saturday, I was... Uh, working on the yard with the kids and uh, had to pull out the stepladder because we had to he- cut some hedges and some, and some bushes. And I, I did what every man ever with a stepladder does. I ignored the warning. You know that warning? It says, do not stand on or above this step. Yeah, I did it. I don't know why they put that step there if they don't want you to stand on it. It's, I mean, then don't put a step if you don't want someone to stand on it. Uh, I especially, that's the one step I need. I mean, especially for short people, the top step is the step that I need. So I ignored the warning, got up there with my, you know, heads or trimmers and and trimmed those bushes and didn't fall and didn't die. Uh, But I was thinking about it. We ignore warnings all the time. We always do, right? Probably the most prevalent warnings we ignore are if you get on a plane, there's the flight attendant. All they're trying to do is save your life, right? All they're trying to do, in case there is another miracle on the Hudson, how to get off the plane, Right, but this is how you do your seatbelt. You know, this is this is where the exit rows. If you can't take out the window, then get out of that seat. We'll find someone else. Right? They're just trying to help. Right, and all we do is we sit there with our Sky Mall magazine, looking at things we're never going to buy. We're never going to buy. No one ever buys anything out of there. Uh, where we got our AirPods in. We're already looking at what movie we're going to watch. We're talking to this person over here, and this person's trying to save our lives. Right, and so in the case that there is an un uh, you know, an oxygen. Uh, Issue on the plane, we're all gonna die because we don't know what's gonna happen. I mean, we're like, should I put this on myself? You always put on yourself first, and the kid, that helps, right? But we have no clue because we ignore the warnings. We ignore them. And today, uh, the writer to Hebrews is gonna give us a warning. And, And he's gonna tell us take out the AirPods, put down the Sky Mall magazine, stop checking out the movies. And take heed and listen. Because this is something that we all need to hear. We all need to hear. What is that warning? That's what we're going to look at in chapter one and two of, of the book of Hebrews. If you're our guest or you missed last week, we cracked open this new book last week the, the, to, the, to the Hebrews, as it's called. The epistle to the Hebrews. And we saw a couple things. Number one, it was a, it's a sermon. Written by an unknown author. We have no clue who wrote it. Ultimately, the Spirit of God wrote it, but we don't know who the original author was. And we don't know specifically where the original recipients are. Here's what we do know. They were a a group of Jewish Christians, right? And he is writing with one main idea and one main theme to them, that Christ is superior over all things. And so the first four chapters, he talks about how he is superior in his person. And then the middle of the book, how he is superior as a priest. And then the last couple of chapters, kind of how he is superior in our living. And what's going on on the other side to this group he's writing to is it's a group of Jewish Christians and they're facing persecution and there's all sorts of heat in their life. And they're tempted to go back to the Old Testament law. They're tempted to go back into Judaism because it's easier and there won't be any pressure. They can be accepted back into the community and so they don't have to face all the pressure. And he is going to encourage them. He's going to warn them, don't do it. It's foolish and it's dangerous. Do not go backwards, move forwards, right? And so he establishes right off the bat last week that Christ is God's final answer, that God spoke in the Old Testament in many ways, many, but now he speaks what? Through his son. He is the final Word And he he highlights seven things uh, of who Christ is and why he's superior. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's all these things. And the last one he mentions is that he was greater than the angels. And we don't really talk about angels a lot. We don't think about them. I mean, we kind of regulate it to Clarence or or angels in the outfield. That's our view of angels. Apparently, the first century, uh, a lot of the the communities, especially in the the Essene community, they actually... uh, they, they had a highly developed angelology and they actually put a little bit too much emphasis on angels, which is probably why he's writing to talk about how Jesus is far superior than the angels. And so we're gonna see that, we'll learn a little bit about angels, but really the point is this, Christ is better than the angels. And I wanna really get to the warning because the warning is the action point of the text. It's the, it's the first command we're gonna see in all the book. We, we don't even see it till chapter two, but that's where I wanna kind of spend the lion's share of our time one of the ways we're gonna kind of approach this book in the next couple of weeks is we're gonna take a kind of a broader stroke, a bigger picture, All right? We could spend three years if we wanted to kind of go, you know, one verse at a time, uh, but I think we would lose the flow of the argument since it is a sermon. So my hope is, is, as we kind of cover the big idea, is that you will go back during the week and kind of dig in a little bit more and spend some time and maybe looking up some of these Old Testament references and kind of thinking on it deeper and studying and asking questions and learning right, uh, and, and there's two studies that I've been kind of using just in preparation that kind of do this, uh, there's a study by David Jeremiah on the book of Hebrews, it just asks good questions and you can go into the text and answer the questions right now, there's a study by Jen Wilkin from the Village Church, that she does kind of the same idea, there'd be, super, you can get it for 11 bucks on Amazon, just to kind of walk through the book, if you want to go a little bit deeper, right, and, and that's my encouragement to you, that we would be self-feeders, speaking of which, uh, how many of you didn't do your homework, not how you did, how many, Okay, nobody. Everyone is spiritual. you're not going to raise your hand and admit that, right? Not with all these people. Uh, The homework for last week was to read through the book of Hebrews in one sitting. I actually got some emails and some people that said they had done it. So good. Your homework for next week is do it again. If you didn't do it, do it twice. All right, I uh, just want you to get your mind renewed and, and to re- get your hands around this book. But he's, we're gonna pick up where kind of we left off where Jesus is gonna kind of go into this discussion on angels and remember the last thing he said was Christ is better than the angels and we'll kind of see where he's going with that. So he says, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is much more excellent than theirs and the rest of the chapter, what he's gonna do is he's gonna quote the Old Testament and show why Jesus is greater than the angels. And you can go back and look at some of these references, some out of Isaiah, some out of Psalms, some out of Samuel, but he's just gonna highlight. He's gonna compare and say, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. So he starts off and says, okay, so to which do the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Uh, Which angels? None. Gabriel? Nope. Michael, the archangel? Nope. Clarence? Nope. He never said that. But to the son... He says, I, I, he, I will be him a father and he shall be me a, a son. And the idea is this, Christ is superior because he has a unique relationship with God the father, one that the angels do not have. Again, he quotes and says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, the word firstborn here is not chronological. He's not the first one born because Jesus wasn't the first one born. There's a lot of people born before him before he took on humanity at Bethlehem. The idea of firstborn is is his position of rank. The firstborn in the family gets a double portion. The firstborn gets the honor, is the heir. And so he is the firstborn of everything. He is the one who is the heir of everything. And so of him, he says, let the angels do what? Worship. See, the angels are are not on the same level because the angels do what? They worship the firstborn of creation, which is what they did in Luke 2, when Christ is born. What do they do? They worship. Right, Christ is superior to the angels. The angels worship Him, and not vice versa. Verse seven of the angels, He says, He makes His angels winds and and ministers a flame of fire. They are servants. They minister. Angels are ministers. But the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, the Son is God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness, the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed You with the oil of gladness. Beyond your companions, quoting Isaiah 61. He's saying this, angels serve. The sun reigns. He has a scepter. They have brooms. There's a difference. There's a distinction there, right? They're not the same. Verse 10, and you, Lord, again, speaking of Christ, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. We saw this last week. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. You will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is eternal. He is, fancy theological word, immutable. He is unchanging. Angels had a beginning point. There was a time when there was no angels and God at some point, we don't know when, created angels. The sun has always been The second person of the triune God has always existed. He took on humanity at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, but he always existed forever and ever in eternity past. He is distinct from the angels. They have a starting point and then they will live forever, but he never began and he never changes. He is immutable. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None of them, none of them. They are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They serve God and serving who? Us. Angels help us. They fight the spiritual battle with us. They come alongside us to help us. That's what they did for Jesus when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting. At the end, they ministered to him. They help Paul. They help Peter. They help him escape from prison. They do all these things. There's angels here right now. Right? They're they're observing us worship. They see you in the back watching your Instagram right now. They see you. And it says that they marvel. They long to just grasp that which we get to experience in salvation. The gospel blows their minds. They don't, because they see God and they see us and they're like, why? Why would they, why would he become man? Why would he, for them? Right? But they serve us, they help us. Us. And so the point is this, Christ is superior. In fact, the apostle Paul says, if an angel comes and, and tries to share a different gospel or a different message, he says, he's accursed. Because Jesus is the final word. He is the logos. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? And so in light of all that, chapter two begins with one critical word. You know it, you love it. Therefore, and you've been equipped and trained enough when you see the word therefore, what do you ask? What's the therefore? Therefore, right? Therefore, in light of the fact that Christ is all these things, and that He's superior to all the angels, far superior. And and so, let's kind of slow down a little bit because this is where the the meat of our of our text is. First word: We love it. We, not y'all, not used guys. If you're from New York or Jersey, we. And I love that word because the writer is including himself. Because I think we have a tendency when we open God's word to see you, yes. You kids, yes. You spouse, you, you boss, you. Y'all need to pay attention. Y'all. And he didn't say y'all, he says we. Because the reality is this there is no one as susceptible to the warning in this room than I am. This is for me. This is my propensity, and I have to acknowledge that. I have to own that, that I'm not above. I'm I'm, I'm listening to myself as the word of God is being preached. We must, this is Greek word, day. It is necessary. It is essential. We must do something. What is it we must do? Pay much closer attention. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say we must pay attention. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say we must pay close attention. He says we must pay attention. Much closer attention. He's saying, take out the AirPods, close the Sky Mall, stop looking at the movies, and pay attention. Listen. Listen to what? To what we have heard. The final word, Christ, His message, His gospel, who He is, what He has done. We must pay much closer attention to that. That's the warning. I can tell you, if an angel showed up this morning, you would pay attention. Every time in the Bible, an angel shows up, oh, they pay attention, and then they change their drawers because they're so scared, all right? And Christ, who is far superior to the angels, he's saying, hey, you, you gotta listen. And we have a, an ability to get so distracted. I mean, if we, I mean, we'll spend thousands of dollars and hours online and hours in line just so we can go see Taylor Swift, right? We will uh, do all we can to get a picture with Kirby so we can put it on our Facebook or, or get a, a ball signed by Ronald Lacuna Jr. Or, or we'll go to some event where some pol- politician is speaking so we can just meet him and, and we'll pay attention to that and there's things are all fine. But what he's saying is you, we, gotta, we gotta pay attention, much closer attention to this Christ, this one who is far greater than the angels, this one who is far greater than all things because if we don't, Why? We can drift. We can drift. It's a word that's only used one time in all the Bible, and it's in this place. Uh, it, it's a, uh, a term that's outside the Bible. It's used frequently. It's used of a ring that kind of slips off the finger or an arrow that falls out of the quiver, of snow that kind of slips down the mountain. But most commentaries agree that here it's a nautical term, like a boat that's kind of drifting. We've all, if you have kids and you've gone to Tybee, you get drifting, right? You go, you take the kids, you got your umbrella, you got your towel, you got 75,000 other things that apparently we need at the beach now. You build your little cottage on the beach and you say, kids, go play. And what do they do? They go out in the water and three minutes later, where are they? You're at 11th Street, they're at 9th. Right? And if you're unfamiliar with Tybee, this sermon, you might as well just stop listening because you're not gonna understand anything I say because everything's coming back to that. So get out your map and look at Tybee so you understand. But... What happens? That, that toe pulls you down towards the jetty. It does. And, and so three minutes later, the kids are way down there, and you're like, come on back. Our towel is here. Can't you see the castle mom has built for you on the beach? Get back here. And what the writer is saying is, if you don't pay attention to the umbrella and the towel, you will end up down at the jetty before you know it spiritually. Right? you got to pay attention. you gotta, you got to be, be close to it. you got to see it. And here's where the argument, where he's like, what does this have to do with angels? He tells us. He says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's talking about the Old Testament law, that, that uh, history says that the angels mediated the law, that God through angels gave the law to Moses. He says, that's how it happened. And so it, that proved, the old covenant, it proved to be reliable, And every transgression or disobedience received their just retribution. So if your ox killed this guy's ox, there was a a payment. If you did this sin, you had to make this sacrifice. There was all sorts of rules. He said that was reliable and that was true. That was delivered by the angels. But this new covenant revealed in the son, he said, it's greater than that. So if, if, if the, that had a just uh, retribution and, and, and there was everything for that, how much more so with, the, with the, the revelation of the gospel of the goodness of who Jesus is? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is we won't. And remember the context, it's a bunch of, of Jewish believers who, who are tempted to go back to that old way of things and an old way of thinking and regress back in the law. He's saying, if you abandon Christ, if you spurn Christ, the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, where are you gonna go? You think you can escape? There's judgment if you reject the gospel, right? This is, there's no plan B. There's no plan B. He's far superior. And you're gonna see throughout this book, there's this, there's this theme That if you are truly a believer, that the spirit of God dwells in you, that you will persevere to the end. It's what the reformers call the perseverance of the saints. Not that you'll never fall, not that you never slip, not that you'll never even drift, but you will drift and then you will come back because you will persevere to the end. You are not saved because you persevere. Understand, you're not like, well, I have to persevere. That way I'll be saved. No, because you are saved, you will persevere. Because if it was your perseverance that saved you, then, then it would be a work, and we're gonna see those who, there's some that, that start off just like the, the seed that's thrown to the thorns and it gets choked out and it doesn't bear fruit. That's not, not truly a follower. And we're gonna see that as, as book. But there's a potential for you, even you, a bloodbought, spirit-filled child of God to drift, to, to end up on 11th Street when your, your folks are on 13th Street. And he, he's warning us, don't, don't let it happen. There's a danger. You gotta pay close attention and and the the million dollar question is this what causes us to drift? what causes you and I to drift we remember it's we not not y'all and and they, let me phrase it this way maybe it'll be more helpful is there, is there ever a time in your life where you were closer to God than you are right now I mean if, if I ask for a hands you know we don't want to see them, but maybe raise it internally if that if that's ever been true there's a time in your life where you were Closer to God than you are now. You gotta ask the question, who moved? Did God move? God's towel is fixed. His umbrella is there. It ain't moved. You're the one who's moved. So why did you drift? Why are you drifting? And there's a million things that can cause us to drift, that cause me to drift. Let me just highlight a few. Let me give you six that I think uh, are, are very common. Maybe some will you'll identify with, some you're not. And let me phrase it this way. If you want to drift, do these things. I'm not saying do these things, but I'm saying if you want to drift, which we don't, do these things, right? And they're in no specific order, but there's just things. If you want to drift, neglect spending time with God. Neglect it. Leave your Bible in your car, bring it out next Sunday. Kind of wipe the crackers off and the goldfish from, from being in the car for a week. Don't open it. Because the enemy of your soul wants to keep you prayerless and he wants to keep you out of God's word. Because this is where your mind is renewed. This is where you find strength. This is where you're encouraged. This is where you're challenged. This is where your mind is who God is and who you are. So he will try to keep you away from it. So, so let him. Right? Come to a, a gathering like this. And, and just watch. Don't engage. Don't sing. Just watch the drummer. Wow, that was cool. How do you do that on a guitar? That's just good coffee. Don't serve. Don't don't let your soul be engaged with what's going on here. Don't be involved. Just kind of stay in the fringe. Don't read God's word. Don't don't do it. And you will drift. You'll drift. That's one way. Here's another way. Stop fighting temptation. Just give in. I mean, everyone else is doing it. You might as well. Sin's fun for a season. Right? Because we have, we have this capacity and this tendency to get as close to sin, to flirt with sin, get as close as we can without going over the line. Just like a little kid don't put your finger in the socket. Well, they get that close. And we look, and we look. And what ends up happening every time, we eventually put our finger in the socket. And you keep putting your finger in the socket. You keep crossing the line. You keep, you keep searing your conscience. It'll get harder and harder. And you'll, you, the, the, the spirit of God, it'll be quieter and quieter. So you don't hear it anymore. So you're just full-fledged. You're down by the jetty and your parents are up at the pier. And you have no clue how you got there. Like, I don't even know where I am. How did I get this far? Because you didn't listen to God. You, you hardened yourself and you just gave yourself into sin and you drifted. Or you could go into it and say, I would never, the famous last words, I would never do this. I would never fill in the blank. I would never, and to him who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall, right? Here's another way. Love the world more than God. Pour yourself into the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Treat this world as all there is. Live it up, live it up now. You're you're in your 20s, I'll follow God later. Right now, it's time for me to live. Get as much as you can, any way you can, as fast as you can. If that means I gotta go into debt, that's just a little bit more slavery, no big deal. I'm gonna live it up, live it up for now, right? And if you do that, I can promise you, you'll drift, right? Obsess about your body, obsess about sports, obsess about politics, obsess about uh, getting followers, of getting up higher on the ladder, just neglect anything spiritual, the lost souls of men, what God is doing, Look out for number one. And if you do that, I promise you, you'll drift. You'll drift. Number four, run with the wrong crowd. This is for all you about to go back to college, you're back in school, for all of us. You wanna drift? Run with people that all they wanna do is get drunk on the weekend, hook up, smoke dope. Maybe you're like, oh, well, I'll never do that, but you know, I'll just hang out with them because I'm gonna be a light. Yeah, you're gonna be a light, giving them a light. Right. I mean, it'll eventually be there. You want to? You want to drift? Go date a non-Christian. Go ahead. Go into business with no some some person that has no moral uh, compass. You'll drift, right? You'll drift because bad company corrupts good morals. You'll be like them. Have zero community. Just roll with these people. Do what they do. You'll drift. Here's another one. Fake it. Pretend. Go through the motions, right? Bring your, Bring your big, big, you know, you know King, King James study James Bible, Bible that five pounds, pounds with all, the, all notes the notes that you wrote, you wrote in, in it so everyone can, can see. And speak all the right languages, right? You know, for those of you who are new Christians, you don't know this yet, you'll learn it. We have our own language. It's called Christianese. We've got all these phrases and terms that only we know what they mean. And we don't even know what they mean, but we use them. So we've got hedges of protection. We we pray for traveling mercies, whatever that is. We're on mission and sanctified and we're echoing each other's prayers or unspoken prayers too. Those prayers that, you know, we're seeking fellowship and searching our hearts and guarding our hearts and, and wanting community and we're doing all these things and people are like, What do you mean? I don't know, but it sounds great. You could fake it. You could pretend, right? You can go through the motions. Not really confess sin, not really worship, not really ask God to move in your heart. Fake until you make it. You do that, you'll drift. Probably the greatest thing we probably can do to drift, greatest thing, is do nothing. Just do nothing. Again, put your four-year-old out, 10 feet out at Tybee with their swimmies on, and I promise you in five minutes, they'll be at the jetty. If they do nothing, they'll just... maybe that's what you want. I don't know. I'll get them at the jetty. Someone will catch them. (laughs) They got swimmies on. But you do nothing, you will drift. Because there's a current. And there is a current, the God of this world, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. There is a current. And it's running through NPR and Fox News and CNN and that blog post and this. And if you're like, I'm going to listen to my my friends because they're so smart, I'm going to blow off my parents because he got a C in biology, he's smart, right? If you're gonna listen to that, you're gonna be be pulled away. If you do nothing, you will be pulled away. Carson, D.A. Carson says it so well. He says this, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, towards prayer, towards obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance, we drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. You wanna drift? Do nothing. Do nothing. And that is why the writer says, we, Bill Fowler, John Smith, must pay much closer attention because we're all in danger. And if you feel a tension there, if there's a little bit of like tweaking in your soul, let me encourage you. That is a great thing because that is the spirit of God saying, "Hey, you're down at 11th, and I'm at 14th. You see my umbrella? It's time to get back." It's so time to get back to the umbrella. It's not God being mad. It's saying, hey, you have the potential here too. Get back. Don't drift. Be aware. Don't neglect. I love the line such a great salvation. Such a great Savior. This salvation, it was declared, the writer says, at first by war. This is Jesus' own message declared by the son of God, the one who is superior. It was attested by, by the apostles, those who heard, by Peter, Paul, John, James, all these who attested it. And then God comes alongside and it's a, it's a fancy Greek word. It's like 16 letters long. It's combined in a whole phrase, while God also bore witness. It's God came alongside the apostles and he bore witness, he, it's the word for martyr. He bore witness to what Jesus had said and what they were saying, how? By signs and wonders and miracles. Right? He gave miracles to say, this is the real deal. Because why, in there, if you think about it, first century, Paul's a thousand miles from, from Jerusalem. He's in Greece. He's in Rome. He's proclaiming a, a Jewish man who was crucified and he came back from the grave. And they're like, why do I care about that? I'll tell you why. Because he just cast a demon out of that guy. He just made that guy walk. He just raised that guy and it fell asleep in the balcony. It fell out of the balcony during his sermon and he raised him from the dead. He took his handkerchief and he rubbed it on his hands and he handed it out and his handkerchief was healing people. And so when people see that, they're like, well, we better listen to this guy because the point of miracles and signs and wonders is not to just like impress people like, wow, that's pretty cool. It was to point to something. It was to validate that the message and the messenger were true, which is why the apostles were given these gifts. And I'm not saying the guy in the realm of possibility can't do that today, but we get so enamored with the miracle and the point of the miracle is to point back to the miracle worker. It's to point to the message giver, the savior, right? It validated everything he said is true and God attested to it. So how can we neglect it? And then he gets back into the angels again, which is why I wanted to cover this whole passage in one time, because it's kind of flow of thought. He says, it wasn't the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. For it is written, it is testified somewhere. I love that little line, it's testified somewhere as if he doesn't know where it's testified, right? And he's gonna quote, Psalm 8, which we worked through this summer on purpose so that I didn't have to really unpack it now. If you want to listen to Psalm 8, go back and listen to this summer. But the point of Psalm 8, if you remember, was that man and women created in the image of God have dignity and value and we've placed a little lower than the angels and are stewarding God's His, his creation. Problem is, man messed it up. Right in chapter three of Genesis, they blew it up and they handed basically dominion back over to Satan. So now he's the ruler of this world for a short time. But this this... The writer to Hebrews is showing us that, yes, that psalm is about us and how we've been made in the image. But ultimately, it finds its fullest uh, fulfillment, not in me and you, but in Christ, the Messiah, the one who Paul calls the second Adam, the one that didn't mess it up, the one that didn't disobey, the one that didn't fall into temptation, that he was made a little lower than the angel's. What? At the incarnation. This is Philippians 2. He took on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And he was given glory and honor, everything in his subjection to his feet. Where? At the resurrection, when he defeated death and Satan and sin. It's about him. And it says this, now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's not you and me. It's under Christ. Everything is under his subjection. But then he gives this great line, and I love it. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Ain't that the truth? Because we're not physically seated right now. We are spiritually seated with him in the heavenly places. But we're not physically there. I'm not sitting in the throne room of God. Jesus, the dry hand of the Father. I'm not there. Where I live is Savannah. Where you live is Pooler, Ardsley, the islands, Georgetown. And things are jacked up in Georgetown and jacked up in Pooler. And same with Ardsley and same with the islands. And so we don't see, I mean, last night, four shootings in this town. Four, right? We don't see everything right now in subjection, right? It doesn't feel like that. You just came back from the doctor and they said cancer. You just lost your job. You don't feel like Jesus is in charge, right? It doesn't feel like all things are in subjection to him, which is why he says, but we got to see him who's made a little lower than the angels, that's Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by grace he might test." Taste death for everyone. His point is this. Yeah, the, the world and all the junk that's going on in Pooler and Arsley and Bluffton and all these places, it, it'll either draw you closer to Jesus or it'll cause you to drift to Jesus. He said if you see him, the one who has conquered, the one who has reigned, the one who has glory, it'll give you a new perspective on that cancer. It'll give you a new perspective on those teenagers that are giving you a, a, a trial. It'll give you a new perspective on your boss. It'll give you a new perspective on, on your financial difficulty. Why? Because he won. So he's trying to draw you back. Don't drift, focus on him who was seated at the right hand, him who is greater than the angels, right? He, he, all things are in subjection to him. And he's gonna encourage us with two, two big ideas, right? And this is where we wanna kind of wrap our, our, our stuff up. Two big encouragements about this son who, who is superior. Look what he's done. First thing is this, he says, look at our family. Think about our family, not your family, or your, you know, those who share your last name, our family, Since it was fitting, it was right, it was true, it was good that He, Jesus, whom by all things and all things exist, He's a creator, and bringing many sons and you could put daughters to glory. Think about that phrase that Jesus brought sons and daughters to glory. You were under wrath, He brought you to glory. What is it saying? He made you family. You weren't family. He made you family. He brought you to family. He did it through His suffering. He was was made perfect through his suffering. And don't get all, you know, in a tizzy. I thought Jesus was perfect. What is wrong with Jesus? Did he have to be? No, there was no moral defect. There was nothing wrong with Jesus. But to be a priest, to be a mediator, three things had to be true. He had to identify with us, which he did. He had to be obedient, which he did. He had to make atonement, which he did. So the idea of made perfect is he was made the perfect priest. Why? Through his obedience, through his identification, through his suffering, through his atonement. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, And in doing so, he made his family. He who sanctifies, that's the son of God. And those who are sanctified, that's the sons and daughters of God, all have one source, that's the father. And Jesus made it happen. That is why he is not ashamed. Love this line. He is not ashamed to call you family. Right? He says, I'll tell you your name, my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. I will put my trust in him. Again, behold, the children God has given me. Think about that phrase. He's not ashamed of you. We've all been ashamed of someone in our family before. Right? Whether it's your own kids, you're at Target, your kids losing their mind because they want a Twix bar, and you're like, you're not having a Twix bar, and, you're, and they're just like embarrassing you. You're like, I want to get out of the checkout line. I want to go because your kid is losing their mind. That's embarrassing. Maybe you have that crazy uncle who shows up at Thanksgiving, and he's, and you're like, Ugh. right? Whatever. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're the crazy family everyone's ashamed of. If you don't have anybody, that, it, that's you. Okay. If you're like, I can't think of anybody, that's you. You're the crazy person, right? Everyone's ashamed. But whoever it is, no one. Jesus is not ashamed. Even though he knows everything about you and everything you've done and everything you failed at, he knows it all. It's as if he's here this morning, he's walking around. I'm like, that person complains a lot. And that person over there hasn't sung in four years. And that person over there, criticism and cynicism, and they're always, songs too long, songs too short, songs too loud, song, sermons do this. Uh, that person hasn't served in the church ever. And, and that person sins. That person, and, and, and at the end of it, he says, man, dad, I love my family. I love this motley group that you've given me. Love them. That's our our savior. That's why it's such a great salvation. That's why he's such a great savior. Why would you want to drift from that? He's not ashamed of you. He died for you. Right. He took the penalty of your sin. He gives you power over sin. And one day he'll remove you from the very presence of sin. What a great salvation. Look at your family. then he closes with, look at your help. Look at our help. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus shares in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Big idea is this. Jesus took the very tools of Satan himself, sin, death, and he used his tools to defeat him. Death is his tool, slavery to sin, and he dies to destroy Satan and death. He checkmated him at that moment by dying, making atonement, and resurrection from the grave. He takes the very tools of the enemy and defeats him with the very tools. And to do so, he had to be human. He had to be man, right? Surely it's not angels that he helps. There's angels again, but he helps who? The offspring of Abraham. Who is who? Us, not just the Jewish people, It's Romans 4 and 5. It's all those who by faith are children of Abraham. He helps us. So he had to be made like his brothers. He had to, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He cannot pay for sin of man unless he is man. He can't just wave his hand and, okay, no. There was wrath of God on us. That's what the word propitiation means. He made propitiation. He satisfies God's wrath. How? He takes on humanity. He lives a perfect life that you couldn't. He's the second Adam. And he dies as your substitute in your place, making propitiation for the sins of his people. He suffered when he was tempted. And because he did, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The idea is this. He identified with us fully so that he can help you fully, If you come to me and say, Bill, I need you to help me this weekend uh, rebuild my transmission. Or I need you to help me cook this souffle. I have a screwdriver and a, you know, spatula. That's all I got for you. I've never done a transmission. I've never never walked in that. I can't help you. I can't do anything there except for check YouTube. I I don't know. Because I've not walked in it. And what the writer is saying is he's walked in it. He's become like us and always, yet without sin. So that if you're ever lonely, guess who else was lonely? Jesus felt loneliness. If you're ever mourning and suffering loss, guess who ever also mourned and suffered loss? He did. If you're ever tired, if you're ever weary, guess who else was weary and tired? He was. If you ever feel attacked wrongly, where do I go? For someone who's, who's walked in that, who's done that, who's experienced that. Ever been discouraged? Even by your own family and friends? Guess who's also walked in that? He's walked in that. When you're facing temptation, which is where he goes, who else has faced temptation? He has. Not just any little temptation either. Satan himself. Not some lower level demon, not some whatever. Satan himself, when he was starving and tired, Tempts him, and yet he resists. So he says, now, when that temptation hits you, I can be there. I'll be there. I've walked in it. I know that temptation is strong. How, how many of us know that temptation is strong sometimes? It is. He says, you know what? I know it. I get it. Temptation was strong for him to skip the cross. So strong that he's sweating drops of blood But he says, I'm stronger. I'm stronger. And if you walk by my spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You will not. I'll walk with you. If you're facing temptation, he's there. He says, I'm here. I'll walk with you. I'll give you the strength. You're my family. I'm not ashamed of you. And if you do fall, get back up. Walk a couple blocks back to the tent. We'll start again. Because that's who I am. That's who I am. I said, so again, I just want to come back to the warning. And I just want us to be honest with us. The tent is here, the umbrella is here, Christ is there. Where are you? How many blocks? Are you a couple blocks down? Are you at the jetty? Where are you at this morning? Just be honest. Because the reminder and the call of the passage is come on back, get, get back to the towel. And it's not an angry Jesus. Like with me on the beach, I'm like, get over here now. You know, that's how we are. You're going to get eaten by a shark or a redneck's going to take you. I don't know, something. Get back up here. That's me. And that's not Jesus. He sees you down there and he's like. And when you get out and you walk up the beach, he gives you a hug and says, all right, get back out there. Just keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. That's the Savior. Such a great salvation such a great savior keep your eyes on him he's made you his family and he helps you he's there for us when we're tempted let me pray and just use this time in prayer and even in in the singing if you just need to sit and reflect and confess and repent because you're do it this is a time for the spirit of god to move in you don't if you if he if, if he's speaking to you today He speaks spoke to me this week. I ain't gonna lie, I was down a couple blocks. Need to come back, right? As if he is respond. If you need someone to pray for you, we'll have folks in the hall. Come on, we'd love to pray for you. Encourage you, whatever you know is appropriate. Just ask that God would do that and you do that. Let me pray, Father. Thank you for your Word and the goodness of it, the call to repentance, the call to not drift. Keep us from wandering, because we are prone to wander. We feel it prone to leave the God we love. Thank you for the gospel that Christ took on humanity, died on our cross, in our place, satisfied your wrath so that we could become sons and daughters of God. See how great the love of the Father is that we are children of God and such we are. So we're we're grateful for that. Just remind us of that. Let that drive us to stay close, to draw near. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can stand as we sing.